0: Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. We're continuing our respiratory month, and we had a couple of great talks today on asthma and COPD. Let's go ahead and start with asthma. This was given by one of our PGY2 residents, Alon Mordell. Alon focused on a couple of big take home points that I'm going to recap for you guys. Number one is that non invasive positive pressure ventilation, specifically BPAP, can be a huge help in really sick asthmatic patients. It decreases the work of breathing, improves oxygenation and gas exchange. If the patient's really agitated from hypoxia, you can facilitate using bilevel positive airway pressure by using ketamine for procedural sedation. This would typically be in a patient that you are planning to intubate and has been best described on the MCRID podcast as delayed sequence intubation. We'll go ahead and drop a link to that podcast in the show notes. Now we're gonna talk more about non-invasive positive pressure ventilation later in the podcast when we discuss COPD. Number two, if you need to intubate a patient with asthma, you wanna use a ventilation strategy of permissive hypercapnia. Give them a low tidal volume and a low ventilation rate with a high peak inspiratory flow. This gives you a long I to E ratio, allowing time for the patient to exhale. If you try to blow off their CO2, you'll end up with dynamic hyperinflation and either obstruct your venous return leading to a cardiac arrest or blow out a lung giving you a tension pneumo. My initial settings are a tidal volume of 6 cc per kilo, ideal body weight, respiratory rate of 6 to 8, and a peak flow rate of 120 liters per minute. Number three, after intubating the patient, you want to monitor the plateau pressure to look for hyperinflation and alveolar injury. You can do this by hitting the inspiratory pause button on your vent and seeing what the plateau pressure is. The plateau pressure reflects what the alveoli are experiencing. You want to shoot to keep the number under 30 millimeters of mercury. If it's higher than that, you can drop the respiratory rate and the tidal volume down even further to prevent high plateau pressures. And then finally number four, troubleshooting the patient with a severe asthma exacerbation that gets intubated. If the patient decompensates after intubation, you want to have a systematic approach. The Dope mnemonic is a nice way to remember this. D is for displacement of the tube, O for obstruction of the tube. P for pneumothorax, E for equipment failure, and S for stacked breaths. You can approach this by disconnecting the vent to take the equipment out of the picture and then forcefully but gently exhale the patient by pushing down on their chest to relieve breath stacking. At the same time, you want to suction the tube out to relieve obstruction and also confirm your tube placement. Then you're going to use ultrasound to identify a pneumothorax and put in a chest tube if needed. I had the pleasure of giving a talk on the crashing asthmatic for the UT San Antonio group that Salim Razai posted on the Rebel EM site, and I'm going to go ahead and drop a link to that podcast in the show notes as well. So our second talk of the day was from another one of our PGY2 residents, Alan Guinea, on COPD exacerbations, and it focused on non-invasive ventilation. I have the pleasure of having Alan on for the podcast. So Alan, welcome to Core EM. Thanks, Swammy. So Alan, you had a couple of really big take-home points that I think the listeners should hear too about COPD. So why don't we get into those? Let's talk about your number one point. So you have a COPD exacerbation who's got a little bit of hypoxia. Can I give that patient oxygen?
1: Right. The answer is yes. And my take-home point here is give oxygen in a COPD exacerbation, but not too much. Um, My sort of quick and dirty answer would be that they should get supplemental oxygen if they need it. But too much supplemental oxygen can cause hypercarbia, and the best approach is to titrate your oxygen therapy to an O2 sat of about 88 to 92 percent. This topic has always been a little confusing for me. You know, I've heard a number of theories regarding the physiology of oxygen administration in COPD, and then I've also heard that some of those theories were false. Uh, Luckily, as I was researching my talk, I found this great review article. Um, from uh, Critical Care published in 2012 that lays out the myths and facts. And appropriately, it's called Oxygen-Induced Hypercapnia in COPD, Myths and Facts. Let's go through it. Is that okay?
0: Yeah, let's go through it really quick. And we'll drop a link to that article in the show notes as well.
1: Sure. So uh, the first theory is oxygen-induced hypoventilation. And this is the first explanation that I learned in medical school. Uh, Basically, it goes like this. There are two central drivers of respiratory drive, hypercapnia and hypoxemia. Because COPDers spend their lives sort of chronically hypercapnic, they no longer respond to that stimulus. And the only driver for their respiratory uh, status is the level of oxygen in their blood. So if you administer supplemental oxygen, you're going to take away their hypoxic respiratory drive and they'll stop breathing. You'll get hypoventilation, apnea, and badness. So Swami, what do you think? Is this a myth or a fact?
0: Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say this one's a myth. Studies show that when you give excess supplemental O2 to COPDers, their minute ventilation is going to go down briefly, but then it recovers to baseline. No true hypoventilation. Meanwhile, their PaCO2 will continue to rise, even with normal ventilation. So something else must be causing the hypercapnia here. So why don't we move on to the second theory?
1: So the second theory you might hear quoted is something called the Haldane effect, Um, And it goes like this. The uh, amine groups of proteins in our blood, and in particular hemoglobin, combine with CO2 to form carbamino compounds. Um, So basically these proteins uh, suck up dissolved CO2. But the ability of deoxygenated hemoglobin to bind CO2 is much higher than oxygenated hemoglobin. And if you think about it, it makes some physiologic sense. You know, in venous blood, where there's little oxygen, but a lot of CO2 hemoglobin can bind it up and help bring it back to the lungs. But the point is, if you administer supplemental oxygen, you'll shift the equilibrium between deoxygenated hemoglobin and oxygenated hemoglobin more towards the oxygenated form, and that'll reduce the amount of CO2 that it can bind, and that CO2 will wind up dissolved in the blood, hence increasing the PaCO2. So what do you think? The Haldane effect, myth or fact?
0: I'm going to go ahead and say this one's a fact. But, you know, the studies support it being true, but they also found that it only accounts for a little bit of the observed hypercapnia that occurs in COPD patients. So there's got to be something else going on. If it's not the hypoxic drive, if it's not the Haldane effect, what else is causing this PaCO2 to rise?
1: Great. So that brings us to our third theory, VQ mismatch. Um, You may remember from medical school that the pulmonary vasculature can dilate and constrict to alter the blood flow in the lungs and match ventilation to perfusion. The primary driver of vascular dilation and increased perfusion is the alveolar oxygen. And COPDers have crappy lungs, so over time their bodies have carefully allocated perfusion to the parts of their lungs that work and away from the parts that don't. The problem is if you administer supplemental oxygen, You can screw up this carefully balanced crappiness, and all of a sudden, the vessels in these bad parts of the lungs are seeing high alveolar oxygen. Their blood vessels dilate. That steals blood away from the good areas that are actually working and perfuses the bad ones, resulting in shunt physiology and dead space ventilation. More badness, more hypercarbia. What do you think? Myth or fact?
0: I'm going to go ahead and give this one the fact. VQ mismatching seems to be the main physiologic cause of hypercapnia and COPD years. And the studies that looked at this suggest that targeting an oxygen sat of 88 to 92% is going to avoid it. You know, Alan, I often hear the critical care folks talk about VQ mismatch. I almost think it's like their default cause. Like when they don't know the answer, like, why does this happen? Oh, it's VQ mismatching. But the more I learn about it, the more I learn that it really is a central part of what happens with oxygenation, with CO2 in the bodies. And understanding the basic pathophysiologies you've gone over here is actually pretty critical.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like whenever anyone asks you what the uh, pressure inside a compartment in the body is, you should just always say 20. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so we did do a little bit of more physiology than we usually do on Corium, but again, I think it was important. We went through this idea of driving their CO2 up, causing them more hypoventilation by giving them oxygen. The bottom line, again, is that if they're hypoxic, if their stat's under 88%, you can give them supplemental O2 to bring them up to a SAT of between 88 to 92%. You want to avoid hyperoxia. So don't try to get these patients up to 100%. So that's sort of your take-home point number one. Let's move to the take-home point number two.
1: Sure. So my second take-home point is, in a sick copd consider early use of BiPAP and then titrate the IPAP to reduce the work of breathing. So first off, BiPAP is the common name for non-invasive ventilation where you set two pressures— One baseline pressure called EPAP, or expiratory positive airway pressure, and then you set a higher pressure that is delivered to the patient with each breath, called the IPAP, or the inspiratory positive airway pressure. Just to make matters a little more confusing, the term BiPAP is actually a trademark of only one of the ventilator manufacturers. So even though we all call this mode BiPAP, it might be labeled something else like BiLevel or BiV on your actual machine. Most of us have probably heard the sort of like default settings for BiPAP stated at 10 over 5 and that's 10 millimeters of mercury of IPAP delivered to the patient's lungs with each breath and 5 millimeters of mercury of EPAP present the rest of the time during exhalation and between each breath. That EPAP is for all intents and purposes the same as PEEP that you might set on a normal ventilator and it's going to recruit and stent open collapsed and fluid-filled alveoli. It's going to improve oxygenation. EPAP comes in handy in hypoxic or type 1 respiratory failure. For example, in a patient with pneumonia or pulmonary edema, you can improve oxygenation by titrating the EPAP up from, say, a starting value of 5 to as high as 15, and at the same time, you can be coming up on the supplemental oxygen as needed. On the other hand, Patients with obstructive lung diseases like asthmatics and COPDers are usually hypercapnic or in type 2 respiratory failure. And these patients have been struggling to move air against their obstruction, and by the time they crash, they're exhausted and not moving air in or out. And as a result, they retain CO2, they become somnolent, and they breathe even less. So that becomes sort of a vicious cycle. But it's a cycle you can break if you could just get air into their lungs to ventilate them and then take away some of their work of breathing. And that's where the IPAP comes in, the top number on that 10 over 5 setting. Each time the patient triggers a breath, the machine will deliver whatever IPAP pressure you set into the patient's lungs. And that reduces their work of breathing and improves ventilation. And the IPAP is what you would want to titrate up if your patient is still requiring more support. I'd argue that when you think about it this way, That sort of standard 10 over 5 setting isn't really the ideal starting setting for a COPD or on BiPAP. The 10 of IPAP is good, and that's what's going to improve ventilation and decrease work of breathing. But that 5 of EPAP is a little superfluous, unless you think your patient has a mixed, so type 1 and type 2 picture. You can't actually deliver IPAP without some EPAP on these machines, so you're never going to be able to start at 10 over 0 but 10 over 3 sounds pretty good to me. If you do use that 10 over 5 starting setting, you'll probably do fine, but it's just important to remember that for an obstructive disease, it's the IPAP that's going to correct the disease physiology, and if your patient needs more assistance, that's what you should titrate up. So, for example, 10 over 3 to 12 over 3 and up from there.
0: Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. You know, uh, Haney Malamut did a great piece on MRAP a couple of months back on type 1 and type 2 respiratory failure and the role of non-invasive ventilation. And one of the big points that he puts out is that that difference between the IPAP and EPAP is what's going to help with ventilation. So you don't want to move them up in tandem. If you start at 10 and 3, you don't want to go from there to 15 and 8. You want to go to 15 and 3. The bigger the difference between those numbers, the more ventilation the patient's going to get, the more CO2 you can remove. So let's move on to take-home point number three. This one's a short one, but I think it's really vital. It's it's actually critical to everything we do about resuscitation. What was your number three take-home point?
1: Right. Uh, My last take-home point was know how to set up your non-invasive ventilator or your BiPAP. Point here is that in a crashing copd -er or any other patient in respiratory distress, every minute counts. BiPAP might be able to turn your patient around, but that's all academic if you don't know how to get the machine on their face and you don't know how to turn it on. I should make a disclaimer that I'm not advocating using BiPAP or any other ventilator without your respiratory therapist, and you should always be calling their service, and in a vast majority of cases, they'll do all the work in setting it up and help you use it. On the other hand, we work in the emergency room, and emergencies do happen. At the bare minimum, I think we should all be comfortable finding our machines, turning them on, and getting them started on our own in a pinch. I can't really show how to use a BiPAP machine very well on the podcast, but I did make a video.
0: Yeah, the video is great. The video is going to be online on the site at Corey M, so you can go ahead and check that out. So, Alan, these are some great take-home points. I think everyone should embrace these. That last one, really the big thing is know how to use all your equipment. In a critical resuscitation, it's going to fall to you. If someone else doesn't know how to do it or if nobody else knows how to do it, you've got to know how to do those life-saving procedures. So, Alan, thanks for coming on the podcast. And again, thanks for sharing your take-home points with us. Thanks, Swami. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net where we've got some great core content. We're going to have a core content post on Wednesday, as well as a journal update coming out on Thursday. Don't forget to check us out and like our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.